This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Muller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Andrew Roberts is one of the best-known biographers and historians writing in the English-speaking world today. He's the Roger and Martha Mertz Visiting Fellow of the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He has served in so many other capacities on both sides of the Atlantic. His more recent books include a magisterial biography of Napoleon, Masters and Commanders, How Four Titans Won the War in the West, but today we're going to talk about his most recent work, his massive biography of Winston Churchill, Churchill Walking with Destiny. Andrew Roberts, welcome to Thinking in Public. Mr. Roberts, when you're talking about Winston Churchill, you're talking about an individual of whom, uh, I think by your own count, there are now at least 1,010 biographies. Uh, What kind of determination does it take to write the 1,010th? (laughs) That's a very good question. Um, I don't know whether determination is probably the best word or hubris. Perhaps might be another um, might be another adjective for uh, what I've done. It took four years, but in a sense, um, I've been writing about Winston Churchill for thirty years since my first book was uh, uh, about something to do with him, and five of my books have had him in the title or the subtitle. So I did feel that it was the right time, really, for me to um, uh, to tackle this completely enormous subject, and I did it regardless, really, of all the other books that have um, been written about him. Regardless of all the others, you might say, but your own, uh, many of us have been hoping you would write this kind of biography, uh, especially after, and by the way, I've read all your books going all the way back to your uh, work on uh, Lord Halifax, Uh, but uh, especially after your magisterial biography of Napoleon, uh, many of us had hoped uh, you would do the same for Churchill, with whom you've been walking uh, as an historian and biographer for a very long time already. 30 years. And uh, the great thing, and that also um, includes writing several hundred um, uh, reviews and uh, articles about him and reviews, of course, of books um, about him. So I did feel that I was um, as well placed to um, to write this book as, as pretty much anyone. And so um, um, I decided to dedicate the f- last four years to it. And um, it's been a, a wonderful, wonderful journey with him. He's, it's so, I mean, apart from anything else, he's so funny. Um, I'm glad you enjoyed this book. I think one of the fun parts of it is the number of jokes that he made. Yes. I've tried to, uh, there are literally hundreds uh, in this book, and all of them are, um, are, are sort of witty and amusing. And it helps it along very much. Uh, you don't get that when you're writing about Adolf Hitler or uh, or any of the Nazis, in fact. Uh, Winston Churchill has been something of a constant companion in my life since I was at least 13. And uh, in, in my own library, I have over 700 volumes of, of by and about Churchill. I'm kind of a hard sell uh, <laughs> on, on something new. But uh, and I mean, this is no flattery. I, th- I think yours is the best one volume uh, work on Churchill as yet, partly, as I think uh, we'll discuss, because of the source material that uh, that you so skillfully use, part of it because you are one of the rarest of biographers and historians who can actually tell a story well, and uh, that, that, that ability to narrate is important. But I felt something else in this, and, and uh, I felt it a bit in the Napoleon and in your other previous works as well. 
Uh, I want to ask you, to what extent does having sympathy, some kind of real sense of connection to the subject of a biography like this matter? That's a very good question as well. I think it does matter enormously. I have written about people I don't like, um, Hitler, of course, being a classic example, but also I never really warmed to Lord Mountbatten either in my book, Eminent Churchillians. And it does, um, it does stymie one somewhat if you, uh, if you don't um, sort of dream about what you'd say if you'd met him and things like that. So I, um, I agree with you. I think that there is an important... It, it, the sense of empathy is an important element in uh, in biography, and also um, biography should not be dry as dust academic uh, stuff. There should it should be literature as well. It should want the you should try and make the reader enjoy the process of reading um, almost as much as the process of of learning about what he's um, reading about. Seven hundred books, eh? Well, um, that is quite something. I think uh, I've certainly got seven hundred books on uh, on Churchill. But my wife keeps telling me that uh, if I'm not writing about Churchill next, I'm going to have to clear them all out of my study. So uh, they're piled up at the moment in every available inch of my study. So uh, I don't know where you keep yours, but I need a new library. Well, I understand and sympathize with the problem, but uh, I, I would just uh, offer the advice that you better keep writing on Churchill because you don't want to let go of any of that material. <laughs> um, I'm thinking, uh, actually, of writing a biography next, my next book on um, his great ancestor, the uh, John Churchill First Duke of Marlborough. Oh. I know that he's not heard of very much in, in the States, and that's one of the reasons my publishers are a little bit wary of it. But nonetheless, um, I think The First Churchill might be a... Uh, um, a title that um, that American readers would like. What do you think? Uh, I would encourage it, especially with that title, The First Churchill. And oddly and kind of sadly enough, there's a ridiculous major motion picture right now in the United States about Queen Anne and uh, and Sarah Churchill. So uh, in an unfortunate way, perhaps there will be some Americans will be more aware of, yeah. uh, of, the, of his historical existence, and then you can come along and... Uh, and and write a magisterial biography to make it matter. Thank you. Well, I, I haven't seen that movie. I better um, better watch it. I suppose. I, I do hope it's not too uh, cringe making. Well, I'm I'm not going to offer any assurance against cringe making, but uh, th- then again, uh, that that can be an impetus for uh, for correcting the record as well. Uh, when, when it comes to Churchill, uh, w- one of the most interesting uh, realizations I had in your book, and you drive this through very successfully through 982 pages, uh, the subtitle of your book, when it's uh, written as Churchill, uh, Walking with Destiny, uh, you really consistently and effectively drive that theme of destiny through the entire work. And I think that's going to make Churchill more explicable to many people. And at the same time, perhaps not, because I think we're a generation that, especially in secular terms, just doesn't think of any such power as destiny at all. Churchill believed in it absolutely. You're right. Yes, it is something that separates us really from uh, people in the in the 1920s or 30s, or indeed much earlier than that, because of course Winston Churchill conceived of his own destiny when he was still a schoolboy at Harrow in 1891. Um, and uh, and today, a belief in in one's personal destiny would, I think, be considered a, by a lot of people a sort of prima facie case for a psychological disorder. Um, and so things have altered a lot. And as you, I think, you were hinting at when you said secular, this is largely down to secularisation of society. There was nothing wrong with thinking about 
um, destiny when we had a much more um, confessional um, uh, society. So, um, but it is absolutely epicentral to understanding anything about uh, Winston Churchill and certainly his drive. He, he, from that moment when he was a schoolboy at age 16, when he told his great friend Merlin Evans, um, there shall be great upheavals in our lives, there shall be terrible struggles, and I shall be called upon to save London and save the country. Um, that is a uh, something that he truly believed about himself throughout his um, his life, and of course, fifty years later, it, it came true in every possible respect. But um, what really drove him on to consider it more and more as being his uh, his uh, sort of driving um, theme of his life really was all the number of um, close brushes with death. That he uh, that he came up, or you'll have you'll have sort of counted them up. They are an, quite an extraordinary number, even in peacetime, of um, moments when he when he nearly died of pneumonia, or he nearly died um, in a house fire, or nearly died when he was drowned, uh, nearly drowned on Lake Geneva. Two plane crashes, four car crashes. You know, it was uh, it was a pretty, and that was just his. Um, uh, his time, you know, when he wasn't actually fighting on on four continents in five campaigns. And he really started out that way, um, born in Blidham Palace, uh, to be sure, but about six weeks premature at a time when being born six weeks premature uh, was uh, often uh, uh, the cause of death uh, rather than the beginning of life. And so he struggled Absolutely. from the beginning. Yeah, and, and uh, getting stabbed in the stomach with a penknife when he was 10, Nearly dying of pneumonia at prep school when he was uh, eleven. The uh, the the, the um, sheer number knocking himself out for a week, jumping off a bridge and falling thirty feet. You know, <laughs> the number of times that he um, largely through his own uh, fault. You know, I mean, there were accidents that he could have avoided a lot of them, but nonetheless, that's that's sort of part and parcel of Winston Churchill. And as a result, he had this sense that um, there were, in his view, in his words, invisible wings beating over me, and that the Almighty actually had a had a plan for him. And um, although if you look theologically closely into Churchill's um, uh, religious beliefs, um, the primary duty of the Almighty seems to have been to have taken care of Winston Churchill. Yes, and uh, I want to talk more about that in just a moment. But uh, looking at this theme of, of bravery, his, uh, his sense of destiny, uh, he, he was a reckless man. He was a reckless soldier, and uh, you credit that to his courage and it is interesting that of, of all the figures uh, there in the, the middle of the 20th century, to, just to take World War II, uh, there's not a lot of demonstration of physical courage from Joseph Stalin. Uh, Churchill considered Roosevelt courageous simply because of his battle against uh, the, the polio and paralysis. But it was Churchill who, from the time he was a very young man, ran as fast as he could into every battle he could attend. That's right, and, and you're right about um, about Stalin. Stalin refused to leave the Soviet Union at any stage apart from the Tehran conference. Of course, um, FDR was uh, profoundly disabled, and uh, and so it was impressive of him to get all the way to to Yalta and Cairo a couple of times, and uh, and the Tehran conference and so on. But it really took Winston Churchill to uh, to be the glue to keep the big three together. He visited. Um, um, FDR several times, six times, uh, crossing the Atlantic, and that was crossing the Atlantic, Atlantic full of U-boats, 
Um, and uh, also, um, when he flew over, his plane got uh, hit by lightning on the way back. The instrumentation, if that had gone down, he'd have been a goner. Um, he flew within the um, radius of the uh, Luftwaffe on many occasions when he was going off to Cairo and uh, and further points east. It's a uh, it's an extraordinary um, story of raw physical courage. Um, I don't believe that uh, it's fair to say that he was uh, he was reckless. Um, he certainly wanted to make a name for himself as a young man and get medals and things like that. Part of the reason for that was that he had no money because of his spendthrift parents. And so in order to woo a constituency, which um, you, uh, he, of course, needed to do to get into Parliament, which was his ultimate uh, dream, ambition, uh, he needed to get fame. And he, he found that on the battlefield. In one line in your book, you write that few have set out with more cold-blooded deliberation to become first a hero and then a great man. And Churchill did both in the sequence he laid out. Yes, some people don't like the cold-bloodedness. Um, I've had some readers say that that, um, that, that sheer sort of drive um, to, um, to draw attention to himself and to, and to get medals and uh, and to you know, the sort of bumptiousness that uh, he exhibited as a young man was something that uh, that have turned them off him. Um, it doesn't do that to me, not least because I've been accused of being bumptious myself, frankly. So I don't uh, mind. I don't hold it as a cardinal sin. Um, but nonetheless, um, you know, I can understand this uh, this sense that he had that he yes. was he was young. But all his family died young. His father died at 45. Um, he had three uncles who died in infancy, another three aunts who died in their 50s. He really thought that he desperately needed to get on in life as soon as possible if he was going to do what he wanted to do, which was to vindicate his father's political memory. Yes, and you know, uh, when I read Cold-Blooded there, even when reading it aloud, I didn't read it uh, in a sinister way. I read it in uh, in more of a, a way of uh, understanding the role he thought he had to play in history and uh, his readiness to get about it. Um, Yeah, well, back to the destiny concept then. Uh, I think one of the other achievements of your book is is more melancholy, heart-rending. And uh, I knew the contours of the story, of course, of Churchill, his parents. I'd even looked through a lot of the material in the archives. I've, I've, I've read a lot of the letters, the poignancy there. Uh, I think you, perhaps more than any other modern biographer, have have really unpacked the relationship between Winston and Sir Randolph Churchill, his father. And one of the greatest lines in your book is uh, is is where I think you're quoting uh, Violent Bonham Carter, who said that Churchill worshipped at the altar of his unknown father. That's one of the most heartbreaking lines I, I know from any modern biography. Yes, it uh, it is rather moving, isn't it? The um, the whole question of how his father, um, who was a very successful uh, politician in his day, he was one of those famous men in um, in Victorian England, Chancellor of the Exchequer, of course, um, really just ignored or just felt disdain for his uh, son. Didn't spot any of the of the you know. Um, latent genius in uh, in his son whatsoever and wrote the most vicious letters to him and uh, and yet instead of hating his father winston churchill worshipped him especially after he died at the age of 45 in 1895 he had this um sense of of 
seeking out his father's friends to hear anecdotes about his father, writing his father's two-volume biography, adopting his father's political stance, and indeed his, his physical stance on occasion, calling his own son Randolph. And then there's that amazing moment in, in 1947 where he meets the ghost of his, of his father, and they, and they converse. He writes a short story about the, um, about the discussion they have. And at no point did Winston Churchill tell his father that he'd been instrumental in helping win the Second World War. So at the end of the, as the ghost leaves um, and sort of just wafts away uh, in cigar smoke, um, he still believes that his, his son, um, uh, Winston Churchill, had not been a success in life. Yes, it's heartbreaking as a son and as a father. Uh, yeah, absolutely, yes. But precisely on, bo- on both levels, you think uh, that this man, one of the drives of Winston Churchill, uh, was the attempt to get the love and approbation of his long-dead father. One of the other uh, achievements of your biography, I think, is compared to many others. And uh, in this respect, I think only Roy Jenkins kind of comes close. And uh, he of long service in Parliament himself. I, I think you get the politics and by reading the book, I think your reader is taken into actually hundreds of pages of British political history that begins to come alive. And I think the mechanism by which you do that successfully is, uh, of course, the central character is, is your concern for Churchill. But you really deal with the ideas. And uh, as, as someone who's very keen for intellectual uh, history, I really appreciated the fact you dealt with the ideas. That makes the the politics make sense in a way that other biographers simply do not achieve. They make they make Churchill look merely erratic uh, or opportunistic. Uh, you're skillful at demonstrating he was actually uh, dodging and uh, maneuvering in some of the most interesting years and decades of British politics, especially in Parliament. And also, I hope what I also managed to get over to the reader is that it was the parties that moved away from him yes. rather than him who was moving away from the parties. When the Conservatives ditched free trade, which was, of course, the um, ultimate reason why Britain had done so well in the um, second half of the 19th century, really ever since the Industrial Revolution, um, he couldn't stay there. And it was an act of principle to have left. And then when they readopted free trade when he was um, out of office in the early 1920s. And, uh, and he had fallen out um, with the principles of the Liberal Party. Uh, he felt able to go back into the Conservatives. Now, of course, it was presented as, as ratting and re-ratting and, and, um, and being entirely unprincipled by crossing the floor of the House of Commons. But on both occasions, it struck me that it was him who had stuck to his principles and his parties yes. that hadn't. Yes, and uh, of, of course, all uh, interwoven in that is is the entire changing position of Britain, the the, uh, the expansion, and then ultimately the contraction of the British Empire. Uh, huge issues: the beginnings of the modern welfare state, uh, questions about the the enfranchisement uh, for the vote for women. They're just massive, massive questions. You you demonstrate a continuity. If we could draw the line from Benjamin Disraeli. Uh, to uh, Churchill's father, Randolph Churchill, and Churchill's understanding of what it meant to, to be kind of a Tory Democrat. And uh, there is a consistency there. I think Americans especially get confused here because when, when uh, Americans in the 21st century see uh, the Tory party or the conservative party and then the liberal party, those look like polarities, which in British politics, they certainly were not. 
and missing is the fact that the uh, uh, the coming thing in the 20th century is the Labor Party, the Socialist Party, of which Churchill never had uh, any kind of uh, affinity. I, I think you've got to set that out, or Americans especially are going to end up uh, understanding an erratic political career that wasn't really erratic at all. No, exactly. And um, the opposition to socialism was something that was... Uh, was absolutely central to him and which he stuck to um, religiously throughout his life. And of course, when communism raised its head as well, he was the first and most vociferous anti-communist in the um, uh, in the United Kingdom and, um, and wanted to intervene in the Russian Civil War to try to strangle Bolshevism in its cradle, as he put it. But <clears throat> he also opposed uh, socialism very... Um, uh, very resolutely, he thought that it was the um, the, the gospel of envy, in his words, and um, and so you can see a very much a um, a straight line really through his uh, through his politics. But as I say, his his parties, and um, he thought that his principles were more important than his party, and uh, and uh, he I think that's something to be um, admired. Now, when uh, we look at the big picture, you mention. Uh, and I think you make the case conclusively that in the three big challenges uh, of his lifetime, it, it was Churchill who understood them clearly and uh, confronted them bravely. Those three challenges being Prussian militancy that led to World War One, the threat of Nazism that led to World War Two, and the threat of uh, of the USSR, of Soviet communism that led to the Cold War. And uh, not only did he perceive rightly the moral nature and the world threat of each of those three movements. But in so many ways, he stood alone, certainly alone in all three. But at some time, he was alone in every one of them uh, as having an influence in British politics. That's right. And as a result, he got an enormous amount of obloquy. He was shouted down in the House of Commons. He was attacked in the newspapers. He was ridiculed. Um, he, The Conservative Party at one point tried to take away his seat uh, from him in uh, in the 1930s in uh, when he denounced Soviet communism and Stalinism in the Iron Curtain speech in Fulton, Missouri in March 1946. He was subjected to um, all sorts of criticism, accusations of being a warmonger and so on. And uh, and also, of course, he was, um, he was nearly... Uh, nearly uh, flung out of the cabinet before the First World War for um, demanding that Britain have a navy that was able to um, protect itself from the Kaiser. So um, uh, what, he, what you see in each of those three um, occasions is tremendous moral courage. We've talked already about his physical courage. And physical and moral courage don't always align in individuals, but they sure did in Winston Churchill. The Victorians in England had a way of describing a massive man on the world scene as a man of parts. That was a man, a single individual, who had so many different dimensions of life. He had more than one ability. He had more than one area of expertise. That was the character of many people during the Victorian age, but none to the extent of Winston Spencer Churchill. When you're looking at Winston Churchill, you are looking at the ultimate man of parts. How do you discuss him? Do you discuss him as historian, as rhetorician? Do you describe him as parliamentarian or later as prime minister? Do you describe him as twice first lord of the admiralty? 
Do you describe him as a soldier? Do you describe him as a student? Do you describe him as an author? Eventually, he would be awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. He was an artist. He was, of course, one of the most consequential figures on the world scene in any age, but particularly looming large, indeed largest over the 20th century. You can thus imagine the challenge of trying to reduce Winston Churchill to a book, any book, even a massive book. There have been some uh, very pointed modern criticisms of Churchill, and and some of these handled very recklessly uh, in the United States, an unfortunate Twitter exchange with an astronaut, of all things, that... uh, (laughs) Uh, I think you know yes. of this. Uh, where we do, Mr. Scott Kelly. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> he said something yeah. uh, uh, of a tribute to Churchill, and the next thing you know, he he discovered on Twitter that Churchill was accused of genocide and threatening the use of poisonous gas, and and uh, on and on and on. And yeah. uh, Kelly just basically backed down and said he apologized because he didn't realize that what an evil creature Winston Churchill was. It, it's the worst kind of historical argument carried out in the worst kind of way. And also with with um, the ambassador, uh, he's the UN ambassador to space, uh, Scott Kelly. You might, you might not think that only only the United Nations would send an ambassador to a place which has no people and no government, and to which they, and to which the United Nations has no power to send anyone. I will simply note. No, yes, exactly, yes, precisely. But anyway, um, uh, Mr. Kelly, um, who only all he did at the beginning was to tweet three words. Um, which was um, in victory magnanimity, which came, of course, from Churchill's uh, war memoirs. And uh, and then he backed down without any attempt to educate himself about the truth of these allegations. Let's go into the ones, the couple of ones that you mentioned. For example, the gassing of the Iraqi tribesmen. When you actually go to Churchill College, Cambridge, and look at the letter itself that he sent, he actually talked about lacrimotary gas, i.e. tear gas. He wasn't talking about phosgene gas or mustard gas or chlorine gas or anything lethal. Um, when uh, people talk about this so-called genocide, um, actually, the uh, what happened in Bengal, he tried to alleviate it as much as he possibly could. But there was a war going on and the Japanese controlled um, Burma and Malaya and Thailand and all the places where one used to buy rice from in order to alleviate the famine. So I'm afraid... Um, uh, Scott Kelly, I mean, the, I mean, my view, the base that he really needs to concentrate on is the one between his ears. Well, that is a, a, an indication of the vacuity of much of this conversation. And of course, uh, th- there is there is every effort being made right now uh, to try to try every individual uh, in the uh, courts of public opinion of 2018 and Churchill, having had such a long, massive lifetime, almost all of it lived out in the public square, and most of it lived out in office, uh, or at least in Parliament, uh, and writing about such things, there's there's no way that Winston Churchill escapes a modern uh, judgment by the fact that he he's he spoke his mind about everything all the time for almost a century, you might say, and and certainly. Uh, on issues of race, uh, on issues of empire. I mean, when, when I'm asked to explain this, I usually just say, look, you're, you're talking about a man who committed himself uh, to the British empires. He thought the greatest force for good on planet Earth. And uh, with empire comes empire. That's right. And also, I think it's important with regard to race, because, of course, he has also been accused of um, 
of, uh, of racism. It's absolutely essential as a historian to see these things in their proper historical context. Uh, ludicrous and obscene, though we see it today, people in the um, Darwinian world, and he was still at school when Darwin was alive, um, did see race as a, um, uh, as a hierarchy and um, with the white people at the top. And um, it was considered scientific fact in those days. And the fact that Winston Churchill um, adhered to uh, what was considered scientific fact, however much we know it, it was wrong, um, uh, it, he really can't be blamed for it any more than, I know, um, you can blame Oliver Cromwell for not supporting socialized medicine or something along those lines, you know. Uh, we mustn't succumb to, um, to chronological um, chauvinism. But it comes quite naturally. I, I, I think that's the first instinct, especially on American college and university campuses right now, is that uh, chronological snobbery or, or chauvinism, because uh, there is no one uh, who can now be recognized. There's no apparatus on the part of, of the society at large right now to recognize historical greatness without historical faultlessness, uh, which is, of course, ridiculous. And uh, uh, th- I, think, I think that's a big problem. I agree, and and it and you see it also a great deal with regard to this um, uh, to the um, uh, memorialising or at least the sort of public imagination when it comes to the empire and uh, colonialism, because what what is being squeezed out is the concept um, which Churchill dedicated his life to, and of course he, he started trying to protect the empire as a young subaltern up on the northwest frontier of paternalist imperialism. Uh, where, where the reason you were there was to try to improve the loss of the um, of the native peoples of the empire, and I believe that for ninety percent of the history of the British Empire, in ninety percent of the places, the native peoples were better off than if the British had not been there. And um, you try to argue that in the uh, academy today, and you get shouted down, and, and you get Twitter trolling and all of that kind of thing. Sure. But the fact is, it is literally true. And also, it's essential to understand that concept of paternalist um, imperialism if you're going to understand Winston Churchill. And of course, you know, I'm writing a biography of him, and I want people to understand him. Well, and you, you help that because uh, Churchill spoke to such things contemporaneously. You've got Churchill speaking of... Of, uh, of of India in particular, and the end of sati, the uh, the ritual burning of widows, the uh, the end of uh, as he said, uh, marrying girls before puberty, understandings of public health well, that, and yes, sanitation. But isn't today, yes. today, Doctor Moeller, isn't that uh, considered um, uh, unacceptable Western uh, um, involvement in um, sort of native peoples' culture? It um, is, it is, but hypocritically, and, and these other. Um, these other disgusting practices. No, it, it is, but it isn't. And uh, without going into detail, uh, on the, uh, amongst the American uh, literati and the cultural elite, they're, uh, they're against making all moral judgments totally, except their own. And, uh, and when it comes to, uh, to such things as the marriage of young girls, their, uh, their new morality is merely a morality of consent. They're not old enough to give consent. And, uh, it's a mess, but your point is sustained, and and uh, that is that there's a mixed verdict on everything in history. Uh, I'm an Augustinian Christian. I expect to see a mixed verdict on everything in history. That's not to say that uh, we should not be thankful uh, for more good than evil 
far more good than evil, I believe, uh, in the influence of the British Empire uh, d- during the ages of its uh, greatest expansion. Yes, and, and you know, when you look at um, the things such as the incorrupt um, bureaucracy that we had there, the way in which the railway network was spread across the continent in a way that it wasn't seen elsewhere in the world apart from the United States, the way in which we created universities and uh, and we had the English language, which of course has become the lingua franca of the world. Um, we created internal free trade area that was massive. We protected the oceans and therefore allowed um, Indian products to, to you know, cross the oceans and also we made sure that the French and German and Spanish and Portuguese and Russians who would love to have um, ruled India instead, and indeed, of course, the Japanese as well during the Second World War, and, and protected them from all of those um, much more vicious, much less paternalist um, imperial forces. Um, and, uh, and, you know, there, there is a sense, therefore, that, um, that just to denounce that and to treat all of that um, giving the longest period of internal peace in uh, in Indian history, in encouraging, um, in fact, putting the amount of land under cultivation, increasing that by eight times, and increasing life expectancy by a hundred percent. All of those things really should be put in a completely different kind of box than the kind of imperialism that um, that was being practiced by uh, by. Well, certainly the fascist powers, of course, and yet it isn't. In the academy, constantly, uh, British imperialism is treated as exactly the same sort of beast as uh, as Nazi, Italian, Japanese imperialism, which is monstrous. Well, especially when you just ask the simple question: uh, In two thousand eighteen, would you rather live in a former uh, Italian colony or a former British colony? That's a very <laughs> easy answer yeah. to or give. Or a former French colony or a former German colony, frankly. Indeed, well. and, and know, the, the list are, could go on. Not, uh, a lot of my, um, you know, European neighbours uh, have not got something to to boast about. The Belgians in Africa, for example, was absolutely monstrous what was happening there, and yet to um, to equate that in the general overall term of imperialism with what um, Britain was achieving in uh, in India, for example, is uh, is just a classically. Um, driven by politics rather than by the facts and the evidence um, on the ground. There are two other big issues I want to ask you about. One you referenced earlier, and that's Churchill and religion. As a theologian, I'm looking for care here, careful distinctions. And uh, I think you provide that, especially early in the book when you describe Churchill uh, and religion. I want to ask you in your own words to speak to this, but uh, Churchill referred to himself as an external uh, buttress for the church rather than an internal support. My argument would be in the main that he accepted the uh, the total structures of the Christian worldview, but uh, never operated as a confessional Christian. That's right, exactly. You've got it right. Um, he thought that the Sermon on the Mount was, as he put it, the last word in, in ethics. Um, he admired... Um, he used the phrase savior once, but otherwise in the 5.2 million words that he wrote and the 6.1 million words that he spoke, he never said the, uttered the words Jesus Christ. So one can't um, believe, I mean, he didn't believe in the divinity of Christ. However, he did believe in the uh, splendor and the glory of, of everything that Christ said and did. 
and so it was unfortunately um for uh, for um anglicans like me and he was an anglican as well um you you can't actually get um Churchill and and Christianity together, but he did have a um, a, a sense of the Almighty, as um, we mentioned earlier, and also um, a sense of what he called in his autobiography a religion of healthy mindedness, yes. which um, consisted of taking care of the poor and the weak, and um, and lots of other things that, of course, the Sermon on the Mount also covers. So, so although he wasn't an actual Christian. He did um, subscribe to the ethics of Christianity, which is, uh, you know, you're halfway there, really, aren't you? Well, I, I want to speak carefully here. The only uh, clarification I would want to press on you or with you here is that uh, I, I really found no evidence that, uh, that Churchill denied the deity of Christ. I found no evidence where he affirmed it. But there's some odd things, such as in his writings where he defends Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch, uh, which seems a very odd argument for Winston Churchill to make. But uh, it seemed to me that, that in the main, he was quite happy with the facts of Christianity, uh, but not the confession of Christianity. And uh, as a theologian, that, that's an important distinction. But I, I think sort of like Lincoln in the American scene, uh, Churchill had this sense of divine providence, which was a moral providence. He believed divine providence ruled in history. Lincoln, very clear about this, and uh, and and Churchill in his own way as well. Uh, it's it's a it's a situation in which I want to make sure Christians never overclaim a character such as Churchill. Uh, that would be to our embarrassment. But you can't explain Churchill without the uh, the the culture influenced by Christianity, of which he was the the very apex. Yes, that's right. And um, I think you've got him exactly. Um, there was a uh, cabinet meeting in which he um, was talking about the old man. And um, people in the, in the meeting asked each other, what old man is he talking about? Um, and, uh, it, and it turned out it was the almighty. Um, and uh, so he did have this uh, this sense of the Almighty. Luckily, the Almighty, as I say, took care of Winston Churchill, um, was a positive force, gave the world its ethics. And during the Second World War, he very much did see the struggle as one of good versus evil. On and and the Almighty was on the side of good. So that in that sense, the um, the Manichaean um, side of uh, of um, theology and religion. He was definitely um, a, a believer. What he just simply wasn't, and this was due to Winwood Reed, who uh, wrote The Martyrdom of Man in the Victorian era, which he read when he was a subaltern and totally accepted, in which basically all um, religions are, are essentially the same, he, uh, uh, Winwood Reed argued. Um, so what Churchill did believe was the religion of healthy mindedness, which he thought was the underpinning of um, of all religions, and he thought this was a good thing and something worth um, worth fighting for. But when it came simply to the to the divinity of uh, the historical um, uh, person Jesus Christ, he was um, not subscribing. He didn't subscribe to that. But as you say, there aren't any denunciations of the concept either. It's a very complicated picture, made complicated, uh, especially uh, I would say for Americans who uh, do not understand the logic and culture of Anglicanism. 
<laughs> I'm not sure all um, Anglicans do either, frankly. <laughs> well, and, and it's a mixed picture, to be sure. But uh, you're talking about the uh, first son of the second son of the Duke of Marlborough, uh, uh, christened, uh, baptized, uh, as uh, the doctrine of the Church of England uh, would, would say. Uh, and, uh, you know, in and out of uh, some kind of uh, contact with the church, getting married, of course, within the bosom of the church, uh, right there at Westminster. He's buried at Bladen and wanted to be, you know, in uh, buried in, um, in uh, well, actually, at one point, he wanted to be buried under the croquet lawn at uh, Chartwell, his, uh, his house. But nonetheless, um, of course, going back to be buried with his parents was... Uh, um, was another, and his uh, and his daughter, uh, who predeceased him, was another um, yes. important aspect of it. But no, he he was an he was an Anglican. And by the way, I mean, there's a political element to this, of course. Every every prime minister of that time uh, was an Anglican. Even Benjamin Disraeli uh, was an Anglican. Uh, you had to be an Anglican, um, sure. really, politically, if you were going to be prime minister. Churchill is known, uh, if for anything, for his voice. Um, as uh, President John F. Kennedy would later say, you know, he, he, he set the English language to war. And, and he, he learned this over time. He overcame difficulties. You make that very clear. I especially appreciated the attention you gave to that 1897 uh, document that he wrote. And as you say, thankfully, it was never published, entitled The Scaffolding of Rhetoric. Uh, describe Churchill's understanding of, uh, of how to give a speech, because this defined his public role th- throughout uh, the better part of a century. That's right. Yes, of course, his public speaking. He's he's thought of um, as uh, I hope by many, but certainly by me, as the greatest orator of the twentieth century. Um, and it didn't come easy to him. He um, he really built it up from theory into practice. And this article, as you say, the scaffolding of rhetoric, which sets out the five key things that a public speaker needs to do in order to get his uh, his audience on side. And later in his life, you can see what a preparation that was for his hour and for his trial, um, because he uh, did use those five um, elements, as he called them, in his later speeches. The extraordinary thing about that article is that um, he wrote it at 23 before he had given any major speeches himself, any public speeches at all, in fact. So, he went from theory to practice, but boy, did he practice. He spoke in all 8,000 pages of public speeches that, uh, that have been printed. And so um, this is somebody who, by the time he became prime minister, had, um, had spoken at least 4,000 of those pages and was able to uh, master a crowd to get a sense of, uh, of his uh, audience and listeners, knew which words would really work. He uh, believed in the clarity of the English sentence, which he said was a noble thing. Uh, he wanted to use short words, short sentences, and primarily go back to Anglo-Saxon uh, words as well. So uh, ones that would be understood throughout the English-speaking peoples because they were used for a thousand years. So in this uh, in this way, he created a corpus of um, of speeches, which I think will last as long as the English tongue. When he spoke, and uh, I've looked at many of his pages of notes, uh, he referred to the outline he used as psalm form. Uh, To be honest, I use a very similar kind of uh, form, uh, not so much derived from Churchill's, I think following the same kind of of rhetorical instinct. 
those notes are fascinating. And when you look at the speech given, he gave himself just the right amount of room for improvisation. But uh, it also made the impression that when he was improvising, uh, he was doing just that when actually in most cases he wasn't. Uh, all of his best spontaneous lines were premeditated. Yes, that's right. Um, as his great friend F.E. Smith said, uh, pointed to Churchill and said, there, uh, there's Winston practicing his ad libs. <laughs> but he um, was capable of ad libs that are simply stunning. Oh, wonderful ad libs. I know, absolutely. His put downs. Uh, of hecklers in particular, which of course had to be incredibly quick because otherwise another heckler would start up. So you had to crush the previous one in order to put off any further ones. Marvelous one, um, I'm sure you remember it, where um, somebody shouted out, uh, rot, um, from the crowd, rot, he shouted. And Churchill said, thank you. I'd like to thank my friend uh, for telling us what's on his mind. (laughs) Well, um, he had a very alert mind, and uh, that 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 too is something that is missing in many who are in public office, and and a sense of security, so that he felt perfectly free to say what was on his mind. Well, he was, as you mentioned earlier, he was born in a palace, um, the grandson of the duke. You know, those people very much were at the apex of um, of uh, Victorian society, and they didn't terribly much care what anybody else thought of them. And that was, uh, I know it's considered sort of unacceptable entitlement uh, in today's world, but at the time it was extremely useful for Winston Churchill because what he was going to be saying for a lot of the time was extremely unpopular and not caring about other people's opinions um, because of his, uh, because of his, his sort of sublime social background um, helped enormously. Can we just go back to something else you said Please. earlier, which I thought was very interesting about uh, the psalm form of his, uh, of his, speeches um, when when written out. And of course, he dictated or, or wrote out all of his own speeches. Uh, he didn't trust to any speechwriters at all, which is, uh, which is virtually unknown in politics today, as you know. But it did mean that his listeners knew that what you got was, was you know, straight from Winston Churchill. And the thing um, that I'd like to also uh, highlight is his extraordinary knowledge of Shakespeare, and the influence that William Shakespeare's um, soliloquies had on his um, on his great speeches. There's an exhibition at the moment at the Folger Library in Washington D.C. of the connection between Churchill and Shakespeare, and uh, and you can eke out many Shakespearean um, uh, not phrases. He didn't copy phrases so much as um, cadences and echoes. Uh, in Churchill's um, speeches, especially his Second World War speeches. The influence of uh, Macaulay, Gibbon, and others, which Churchill really read for the first time under conditions of war, you know, having his mother send these uh, volumes to him. Uh, in this sense, he was kind of an autodictat. I mean, he, he, didn't, he didn't do horribly in school, as, as you document. Well, he, he had to be an autodidact because he went to Harrow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, I'm not sure my listeners will understand the, uh, the, the sorry, angle and what you're okay, saying. Well, let me explain. He, he had to be self-educated because he went to a school which um, churned out extremely brave and splendid uh, upholders of the empire, but not intellectuals. <laughs> In any sense, there weren't there weren't that many. Um, uh, certainly, in my day, you didn't get that many uh, sort of classical scholars at Oxbridge uh, coming from from Harrow. Isn't that something that uh, again? This is a this is a very uh, 
English uh, situation, where in, in so many ways, the time that Churchill was in these schools, and it would have been I think true of Eaton as well. Uh, they were primarily existing to turn out the leaders of an empire, not primarily to turn out scholars. No, precisely. precisely. I mean, if it turned out that somebody was very bright, um, then of course they would go on to read uh, Latin or Greek at Oxford or, or Cambridge. But that certainly wasn't the, um, the purpose of the schools. The purpose of the schools was to create a Christian gentleman. Uh, somebody who could then go off to uh, the Sudan or somewhere, and it probably in the uh, uh, along with about five other uh, people from the Sudanese civil service, um, run tracks of um, of hundreds of thousands of um, of square miles yes. and, and hundreds of thousands of people. I, I will tell you what I find to be the central question for me, uh, kind of obsessively, of understanding Churchill. It's it's not his timeline. That that would be enough. Just the fact that, you know, born in Blenheim Palace, uh, uh, entered Parliament uh, under Queen Victoria, but uh, but but would then become the, the be the Prime Minister when Elizabeth II uh, becomes Queen. It, it, he saw one world go into the next, and uh, he, you know he saw it. He oversaw it in so many ways. I, I, I want to tell you what moves me more than anything else about Churchill is that I have to hold two things in, in tandem all the time. And that is that he understood evil in a way that that Manichaean understanding of evil. He saw the Prussian militarism as evil. He saw Hitler as undiluted evil. Uh, and he understood what threat Hitler would then pose to uh, to freedom around the world. He He understood Soviet communism as evil. And, uh, and, and every one of these, he understood the evil at a time when it looked like the evil was ascendant and might well be triumphant. And yet throughout all of that, there's this incredible joy. This is a man who could sleep at night, wake up and have a lengthy breakfast before he would get about saving the world. Uh, that's the perplexity to me, uh, because it's hard for me to hold in one human being this amazing right understanding of evil ascendant in the world and this enormous confidence he had, and and even joy, and that's why um, it was so difficult to uh, to fit all of that into fewer than nine hundred and eighty two pages. Um, you do, as you say, as you say, have this uh, extraordinary thing. He he was the first person um, in Britain, certainly, to uh, to spot the evil of uh, of uh, the Nazis, and I think he was helped by three things in this. The first was his philo-Semitism. He liked Jews. He, uh, he'd gone on holiday with Jews. His father had liked Jews. He represented Jews in his first constituency. He was a Zionist at the time of the Balfour Declaration. And so he had an early warning mechanism when it came to what the Nazis were really like, which was, I'm afraid, um, not vouchsafe to uh, many of the, his contemporaries of his age and class and background who were anti-Semitic. That's the first thing. Second thing is he had he was an historian, and he was able therefore to place the threat that the Nazis posed into the long panoply of uh, attempts to hegemonise the continent, going back to Philip II of Spain, then Louis XIV, then Napoleon, and then the Kaiser, uh, and of course Hitler. And the last one was, um, which I think you've you touched on, was um, that he had seen fanaticism up close in his life in a way that lots of his other contemporaries hadn't. Certainly none of the prime ministers of the 1930s, like Ramsay MacDonald or Stanley Baldwin, 
or Neville Chamberlain. He'd seen it in the Islamic fundamentalist fanaticism up on the northwest frontier and in the Sudan. And of course, although that was religious, uh, he saw the same kind of, um, of thing in the uh, political fanaticism of the Nazis. And so all three of those things came together and allowed him to spot this before anybody else did. And he also, of course, had the moral courage to keep saying it, even though to keep making the warnings. Um, and they were practical warnings because he said, we need to spend more money on our air force. Um, they weren't just sort of uh, Jeremiah um, or Cassandra in the, in the wind. It was actually a practical purpose that he made these warnings about. Well, Andrew Roberts, you have written uh, a, an incredible achievement in this biography of Winston Churchill. Uh, I am so thankful that that long line of Churchill biographies did not end at 1009. But, uh, <laughs> thank you very we, much. We now have the 1010th, and I, I commend it highly. And I just want to thank you so much for joining me today for Thinking in Public. Thank you very much indeed, Dr. Moller. I've absolutely uh, loved it. It's been fascinating. Of all the interviews, uh, you've really got to the nub of the matter again and again. Thank you. I began this conversation with Andrew Roberts about his new wonderful biography of Winston Churchill by looking at the subtitle, Walking with Destiny. That rightly defined Winston Churchill's life. As we said in the beginning, though, it establishes a tremendous distance from our own times and his. Indeed, you had Andrew Roberts saying that someone who believed in destiny, as Winston Churchill did, would probably be diagnosed as pathological today. I would go further and say that just about anyone would describe him by today's psychotherapeutic culture as being narcissistic, power-hungry, delusional, obsessive, you go down the list. But without all of those qualities, and yes, I call them qualities, you would not have had the Winston Churchill that in so many ways saved Western civilization. You would not have had the Winston Churchill who at the right time, in the right place, knew how to do the right thing, knew how to rally the British people, knew how to confront Hitler, knew how to diagnose even earlier that Prussian militarism that would eventuate in World War I understood the dynamics of power, understood the necessity of defending freedom and democracy, understood the unique role to be played by not just the British Empire, but by the union of peoples he identified early in life as the English-speaking peoples. It would be Winston Churchill, born the first son of the second son of the Duke of Marlborough, who would be also the son of an American mother, who would understand the unique relationship between Britain and the United States that would in so many ways forge the modern world as we know it. He understood an entire value system. He understood a distinctive understanding of humanity held by those English-speaking peoples. He understood a religion, a religious foundation and heritage of classical European Christianity that had established the entire frame of reference for the English-speaking peoples. He understood a unique relationship, a relationship that he thought and saw and articulated as running, for example, from the Magna Carta to the Declaration of Independence. Now, just consider what it meant in the 19th and then in the early 20th century to have a singular man who rose to such political prominence in Great Britain, 
who would have years in power and then a decade in the wilderness before being called back again in order to save the kingdom, the empire, and the civilization. You have an individual who understood the unique relationship that had to emerge between England, that is to say Britain, and the United States long before others saw it. It's not just that he had a noble British father and an American mother. It is that he, more than just about anyone else in his age, understood the past and understood the present and saw into the future. That would sometimes get him into trouble. It got him into trouble when he saw Prussian militarism and spoke of it when everyone else wanted to believe that the grandchildren of Queen Victoria would not possibly engage each other in war. He saw this in his wilderness years when he was out of office and thus largely out of influence. But he understood exactly who Hitler was and what Adolf Hitler was doing. He wrote about it. He spoke about it. It made him even less popular. But it also, when the moment came, made him indispensable. But ponder again for a moment what it meant for a grandson of the Duke of Marlborough to then turn to the American Declaration of Independence and say that it was a logical extension of the Magna Carta. What Winston Churchill did, and almost no other British statesman could have done, was to say at the very moment that the United States was rising in influence on the world scene and Britain was receding, that this was actually a continuation of the British project of English identity, a union of the English-speaking peoples. By the time you get to the actual drama and the terror of World War II, it was Winston Churchill who understood that eventually the war would have to be won, could only be won, for freedom and for democracy— by the overwhelming power of the United States of America. That's why the very night after Pearl Harbor, Winston Churchill was able to say that he slept the sleep of the contented. He knew that now that America was in the war, the war would eventually be won. At the conclusion of his 982-page, his page-turning biography of Winston Churchill, Churchill Walking with Destiny, Roberts concludes with these words, quote, His hero, John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough, won great battles and built Blenheim Palace. His other hero, Napoleon, won even more battles and built an empire. Winston Churchill did better than either of them. The battles he won saved liberty. I think one of the most lamentable dimensions of the contemporary generation is ingratitude. Ingratitude towards those who stood astride history and made possible the very world we know today the very liberties we enjoy and take for granted today. And, of course, we see this when we consider the recent death of President George H.W. Bush, the last World War II veteran to serve as President of the United States. We see this over and over again with figures passing from the stage. But we certainly see this in that figure who passed from the world stage in the year 1965 but simply will not pass from our imagination. Winston Spencer Churchill. As I told Andrew Roberts, Churchill has been something of a fascination, maybe even in an odd way an obsession, since the time I was 13. That is to admit, I don't think I'll get over this. At no point does Andrew Roberts fail to point out Winston Churchill's many mistakes, to correct those mistakes with the lens of the historian. But that just makes the story better. Because, after all, being a man of many parts, as the Victorians would say, means being honest about all of those parts. 
But then it also requires putting all of those parts together in a single individual at a singular moment in world history and understanding how that man and that moment came together. The only secular explanation for that is destiny. But as I discussed with Andrew Roberts, the secular world is losing any ability to speak of destiny. Destiny might not at first appear to be an explicitly theological word, but at the end of the day, it turns out to be so, because without understanding a God-centered, divinely ruled universe, there's really no place for destiny at all, and no one left to walk in it. Many thanks to my guest, Andrew Roberts, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you're going to find more than 100 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under Thinking in Public. By the way, you'll discover a previous conversation with Andrew Roberts about his wonderful history of World War II, Storm of War. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.